0: Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about John Belushi are insane. He attacked an unruly theater patron and nearly started a turf war in Chicago. He tried to steal a boat from a marina with his blues brother, Dan Aykroyd. He nearly died while performing one of his final shows as a Saturday Night Live cast member. He was solely responsible for a punk rock riot that was broadcast on national television. And though he wasn't a punk rocker, John Belushi was nonetheless a rock star of the stage and screen, and he made great films. Some of the greatest comedies of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, That wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the all-star trio and their orchestra performing Vamping Rose in 1921. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Mark Rydell's On Golden Pond. And why would I play you that specific slice of grumpy old man cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on March 5th, 1982. And that was the day John Belushi's body was found in a rented bungalow at the Chateau Marmont, victim of a lethal speedball at the age of 33. On this episode, unruly theater patrons, stolen boats, punk rock riots, lethal speedballs, and John Belushi. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season five, Hollywood land. It was 1970 and life was just beginning. The blinders were off and the world was in focus. Life was moving fast. For 21-year-old John Belushi, there was plenty to love. Like Judy, his high school sweetheart. He was mad about Judy. He loved her deeply. But life wasn't just about love. There was also plenty to hate. And there was no gray area. You loved deeply, you hated deeply too. Nixon, for one, could fuck right off. Kent State was a tragedy. War? What was it good for? Absolutely nothing. Ditto the cops, those contemptible pigs. The boys in blue who knocked on the door of Belushi's apartment at a search warrant, busted for possession of 12 pounds of good grass. Like the Glen Ellen PD didn't have anything better to do with their time. The cops weren't any better than the greasers who liked to bully nonconformists or the also-ran jocks who sat around catching a buzz and talking about the glory days. Belushi was a hell of a middle linebacker back in high school, sure, but that was then, before his eyes were opened, before he realized that it was all bullshit and not just clinging to a pigskin in the not-so-distant past. Peace, love, understanding. It had all been a mirage. But hey, that's what comedy was for, to make the bad stuff more tolerable. Belushi scanned the newspaper every day, smoked some grass, and found things he could make fun of when he performed on stage later in the night. And there was plenty. Like the Honorable Richard J. Daley, mayor of Chicago. You know, the guy they named the plaza after. That's where they got that Picasso. Politicians in general were easy fodder. Same for the hippies who didn't realize that their precious little movement was DOA. And then... They were your parents. It didn't matter who you were or where you came from. Mom and dad gags were funny as shit. Belushi wasn't from a prestigious family like his friend Chevy Chase. He wasn't born into money. Wasn't tall and handsome. He was an everyman. But he felt like an outsider. Belushi's parents were first and second generation Albanian immigrants. His grandmother barely spoke any English. He was weird by default. He'd do anything to not feel that way. So the stage helped. Performing in front of a live audience, his weirdness paid dividends. But it didn't pay the bills. Monthly rent for the basement at the Universal Life Church in Chicago was $100. Belushi split it three ways with two friends. They could cram about 50 people into the former coffee house for their quote-unquote blackouts, which is what they called the nights they performed live comedy skits. Belushi came armed with that week's news but the subjects of their performance generally fell into one of three categories, sex, drugs, or violence. Admission was only $1, and you got all three. But not everyone was laughing, and not everyone was paying. The greaser demanding to be let into the Universal Life Church coffee house this night was straight out of Belushi's anti-list. Bully, conformist, beer drinker, macho fucker wasn't getting inside until he handed over a buck. I paid my fucking money, he yelled at Belushi, who had been summoned from backstage to deal with the confrontation at the front door. Are you calling me a liar? Yeah, Belushi responded. I am calling you a liar. Now get out. The greaser didn't move an inch. He stood up straight, extended his chest, and got right in Belushi's face. Who the fuck are you? God? Now, comedy doesn't solve any problems. It can make some of the shittier things in life easier to swallow serves as a relief, a salve, but Belushi knew as well as anyone that some situations call for more than comedy. Some situations call for a punch, not a punchline. And sometimes, an asshole just needs to get his fucking face bashed in. Belushi grabbed the guy by the shirt and pushed him to the doorway and out onto the street. The guy stumbled backwards as the comedian gave chase. Belushi got hold of him again and tossed his body onto the hood of a car parked nearby. The hood crackled and creaked as it dented. And then, before the guy could even think about pulling himself back up, wha, Belushi punched him square in his greaser nose. The guy's face crumpled, blood spurted everywhere. Belushi's fist ached like hell. Comedy was great and all, but fuck, this might be even better. Living life to the fullest, living life in the now, in this moment, grabbing a motherfucker by the collar and smacking him hard. The release, the sudden quick buildup of anger that just came out of nowhere. It came from deep down inside you, some hidden place that you didn't even know existed. You felt that, you felt it in your fist and you felt it where your heart was beating in your chest and the motherfucker on the other end of the punch felt it too. Did it feel better than laughter and applause from a half drunk audience? Maybe, but then Belushi felt something else, regret, panic. Dozens of greasers were slowly emerging from the shadows Friends of this poor son of a bitch who was nursing a broken, bleeding nose on the hood of some stranger's sedan. And they were holding wooden boards and pipes, some real West Side Story shit. Belushi tried to find the humor in the situation, but it eluded him. He did manage, however, to elude physical retaliation. For the most part, some of the greasers did get their hands on him, but the crowd assembled at the coffee house spilled out onto the street. The brief standoff lasted only a few minutes. And then the show went on. Belushi and his friends performed inside while a legion of revenge-seeking greasers banged their fists on the windows. Tough crowd was an understatement, and the last didn't last too long that night. Neither did future blackouts at the Universal Life Church coffeehouse. To continue at that spot with the newfound hostility felt, well, a little too dangerous, even by John Belushi's standards. Word traveled, however, and Belushi was soon offered a spot at Chicago's respected Second City, which then led to a part in the touring cast of National Lampoon's Lemmings, a live show that skewered Woodstock. Lemmings was where Belushi's legendary riff on Joe Cocker was born, long before Paul McCartney paid him six grand to do the impression at his birthday party. And it got to the core of what Belushi's comedy was about. To quote the New York Times, the real message of the 60s wasn't peace and love, It was death from needles or bullets. Take your pick. Death is what Lemmings is all about. It is also implicitly about laughter as a vital life sign. It was like Bob Dylan said, he not busy laughing is busy dying or something like that. Laughter got Belushi to New York City where they said he wasn't ready for primetime TV. And it turns out they were right. In fact, John Belushi wasn't ready for any of it. John Belushi fell into the back of the limousine. A group of people piled in behind him. Some he knew by name, others he, wait, who the fuck was this guy? And this was his new nightly routine. Nights that he wasn't locked in the Saturday Night Live writer's room until sunrise, that is. Limo, club, limo, restaurant, limo, private party. An odyssey of New York nightlife. You walk down the street and people yell, Bluto, and pass you a handful of drugs. And what the fuck is this? Do you snort it, swallow it, stick it up your ass? Fuck if you know, you just ingest it wherever it feels right. On the spot. The fans expect it. It would be rude not to. And by the time you get to the door of the club, you're not Bluto, you're Blotto. And you know all the doormen by name, all the bartenders too. That helps, especially when your words are slurring. Most places love you, some don't. Some have started to ban you. Fuck them, doesn't matter. There's plenty of places to go, just like this one. Your adopted city does not sleep. And neither do you. The limo pulled out into a sea of yellow cabs. Belushi was already exhausted. This week, like all the other weeks, was insane. Writing all night every night with the rest of the SNL writers. Guys like Dan Aykroyd, Al Franken, Bill Murray, and his brother Brian. Soon they'd performed those skits to over 13 million homes. Land sharks and cone heads and little chocolate donuts. That was tomorrow. Tonight was Friday night. Tonight, John Belushi wasn't a comedy writer. Tonight, he was a rock star. And tonight, he would party with one of the greatest rock and rollers of them all, Ronnie Wood. Hitting the brakes wasn't an option. What was he gonna do? Pass up the opportunity to meet a rolling stone? He'd sleep when he was dead. Belushi rested his head against the window and watched the buildings pass by. His eyes got heavy, his lids slid shut. He was back on a plane the year before, traveling to Oregon to film a college comedy in which he played a toga-wearing ignoramus with a knack for near incomprehensible speeches. Belushi himself was dead sober when he made it. Director's orders. It was his first real acting gig. Serious fucking business. The limo hit a pothole, and Belushi came to for a split second. The lights outside just made him drowsy. Or maybe it was whatever he swallowed a few minutes before. He closed his eyes again. Now he was on another plane. This time, two years earlier, holding hands with Judy. It was Christmas, they were visiting family. The trip was intended as an opportunity for Belushi to recenter himself and his relationship. A trip which would conclude not just with marriage, but with his commitment to clean up after an intense period of cocaine use mixed with his first taste of pure, uncut fame. The limo driver turned the volume up on the radio. Belushi opened his eyes again. The vibrations from the speakers echoed through his mind. His eyes fluttered and once again closed shut. Another plane, four years earlier now, touching down in New York. A new gig at National Lampoon. A nobody from the Midwest eager to make a name for himself, eager to prove that he belonged. Judy joined him, as did his friends from Chicago, from Second City, Gilda Radner, Harold Ramis, Joe Flaherty. But Belushi couldn't shake the outsider thing. When he and his good friend, Dan Aykroyd, were hired as part of the inaugural Saturday Night Live cast in 1975, they were picked dead last. Aykroyd had a bad reputation as a no-show, and Belushi made it known that he thought television was fucking stupid. If he sat any closer to the TV in his apartment, he'd be tempted to kick the fucking thing until it blew up. Suddenly, someone next to Belushi was gripping his arm and shaking him. Hey, psst, got any more? Belushi opened his eyes. He was back in the limo. He searched his pockets and found a vial of white powder. The hands that shook him awake quickly snatched it away. Fuck, he needed to wake up. He needed to be John Belushi. The open vial was passed back to him. He shook out a line on the back of his hand, like a bolt of lightning The Coke brought him back to life. It was better than mescaline, better than LSD, better than amphetamines and peyote put together. Coke was necessary. Everything in New York was heightened, The sensory overload of lights, camera, action, the stakes, the laughs, work hard, play harder. How the hell did you even expect a show like Saturday Night Live to get made? A 90-minute live show with brand new material, funny material, week after week after week, if it wasn't for cocaine. Belushi forgot about how tired he was, about the expectations and the pressure. Forgot that this vial in his hand was a rabbit hole he'd already gone down. Forgot that it nearly cost him his relationship with his wife and the limo stopped in front of another club. A tall, lean figure with jet black hair was standing outside. It was him, definitely him, Ronnie Wood, waiting on a friend. Belushi opened the door and stepped outside. The sidewalk stretched far into the distance for miles and miles, and there was no end in sight. The next morning was brutal on stage at Studio 8H. Belushi's head pounded, his shirt was drenched in sweat. Holy fuck, did those lights really need to be that bright? He missed a line, and then another. How did Ronnie do this shit? Belushi mumbled through his lines and continued to drag his feet around the stage. He just wanted to go lie down. Just let him sleep, let him get a little time alone, and he'd be fine for the show. And the NBC doctors came to take his vitals, and the prognosis wasn't great. Belushi was in terrible condition. To go on stage that evening would risk making things even worse. When Lorne Michaels, creator and producer of Saturday Night Live, saw the pale face of his star, his blood began to boil. He had grown accustomed to the antics and rebellious streak of Belushi the TV star. But this wasn't Belushi the TV star. Not Belushi the samurai or Belushi the weatherman. This wasn't No fries, Cheeps. This was Belushi the megastar. Animal House was the movie event of the summer of 1978, and John Belushi was at the center of it. The bozo with the college sweatshirt who took on the dean like a drunken underdog. The one who saw a hippie strumming an acoustic guitar and smashed it on sight, and justly so. But Belushi wasn't just at the center of the number one movie and the number one TV show in the country. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd released an album as their musical alter egos. The Blues Brothers, a real band with real seasoned musicians that was based on an SNL sketch. The album, Briefcase Full of Blues, featured a collection of R&B and blues standards recorded live at a raucous performance opening for Steve Martin in LA. And the record hit number one on the Billboard 200. John Belushi was a certified triple threat. But right now, the only thing he was a threat to was himself. Lorne Michaels looked over at a star it wasn't like he was the only one getting high. Studio A-H was coated in a layer of coke dust, and this being the late 1970s, there was no rug to sweep it under, because at the time, it wasn't considered a problem. But even so, everybody knew that nobody had appetites like John Belushi. He ate like a king, drank like a king, and did coke like a king too. Kept him going, kept him upright, allowed him to fit years into months and months into weeks and weeks into days. Lauren understood the pressures Belushi was facing, but he had a show to run, and the doctor gave it to him straight. Belushi could not go on. If he did, he could die. Lauren wanted the odds. What were the chances John Belushi would actually drop dead on live television? 50 50, the doctor said. Lauren looked at Belushi sweaty, nauseous, devoid of color, ready to collapse, but not yet ready to throw on the towel. Lauren could live with those odds. Belushi peeled himself off the couch and flipped the switch as he always seemed to do. He wasn't ready for primetime, the fuck he wasn't. Didn't matter that he couldn't give 100%. That particular episode of SNL on February 24th, 1979, hosted by Charlie's angel Kate Jackson, was the highest rated of the entire season, and it was produced live with its star cast member literally on death's door. John Belushi knew that he dodged a bullet, It wasn't a question of if Saturday Night Live would kill him, but a question of when. By the end of the 1978-1979 season, John Belushi was gone. He took Dan Aykroyd with him. It was one thing to be funny and make people laugh on TV, but John Belushi didn't want to be a comedian forever. John Belushi was a fucking rock star. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The bolt cutters snapped the section of chain link fence in two. John Belushi was a little surprised, either at his own strength or how easy it was. It was two in the morning, and Dan Aykroyd posted lookout. An Ontario cop car was prowling around in the darkness. Dan told Belushi to hurry up. Belushi wasn't too worried. He didn't have a record in Canada. Plus, he was almost in. A warm breeze blew in and you could hear the waves of the lake as they lapped against the dock of the marina on the other side of the fence. Belushi worked the bolt cutters some more. They bit through the chain link. Done, easy. The section of the fence was pulled aside and Ackroyd backed his old Chrysler pickup to the dock. It was 1978 and Dan Ackroyd had some land on a lake in Ontario. He also had a boat, but the boat didn't have a motor. So Ackroyd had an idea. I'm going to rob the marina, he told Belushi. Want to come? Was it a stupid idea? Absolutely. Did John Belushi care? Fuck no. Dan Aykroyd might be crazy, but he was a friend, and Belushi would do anything for a friend. They had a full tank of gas in the truck, half a pack of cigarettes. It was dark, and they were wearing sunglasses. What was the worst that could happen? Belushi nodded at Aykroyd and said, Let me get my smokes. Now they were done at the marina having busted through a chain link fence, trying to hitch a boat to the back of Ackeroid's pickup. And dismantling the motor was just too much work, easier to just take the whole damn thing. They wrestled with the boat, pulling it up to the truck's hitch. They struggled to make sense of the bolts and the pins. Nothing was lining up right. Fuck, this is gonna be harder than they thought. A car passed by in the distance. Maybe it was that cop who had been tooling around. Screw it, it wasn't worth it. Abort mission it was all the same to Belushi, Some missions were boondoggles born to fail, and others you just had to see through to the triumphant end. Some were missions from God. The M16 unloaded, firing round after round in ear-splitting succession. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were flat on the ground, covered in mud. Belushi stood up slowly, He ran off a few rehearsed lines from behind his dark sunglasses. He moved slowly towards the assailant. She was no ordinary assailant. She was a scorned lover, and most recently, a princess. And the princess aimed the M16 at Belushi. Her finger firmly gripped the trigger. One shot, and he'd be gone. Belushi fell to his knees. He begged for forgiveness for another chance. Please, baby. Things had gotten crazy, but he could change. He had to. Cut. John Landis shifted uncomfortably in his chair. The movie he was directing, The Blues Brothers, was quickly becoming one of the most expensive films of all time. And although John Belushi was on his best behavior through most of the shoot, there were still hours, even days lost to drugs. He showed up late, sometimes not at all. The production burned money. When Belushi did show up, he was congested from all the blow. Today, however, John Landis wasn't worried about getting Belushi to set. He was there. What John Landis was worried about was what Belushi would look like when he finally took off his sunglasses. This was the scene where Landis needed Belushi straight. The only scene in the entire two-hour and 13-minute film where John Belushi removed those sunglasses. John Landis needed John Belushi clear-eyed, the opposite of fucked up. But Belushi wasn't the only loose cannon on set that Landis had to worry about. The scorned lover, the princess with the M16, Carrie Fisher, had been drug buddies with Belushi for years. They were kindred spirits under immense pressure, the kind of pressure that led to dependence. And that dependence didn't stop, especially not on the set of the film they were currently shooting. Cocaine was making Belushi's voice raspy. It made his nerves jittery. He wandered from set. Ackroyd started calling him America's guest after he walked into a stranger's home, asked for some milk and a sandwich, and made himself comfortable on the couch. The crew started calling him the black hole because he lost so many pairs of those iconic black sunglasses. Landis was well aware of the degree to which drug use was affecting John Belushi. Just weeks before, he found piles of the stuff in Belushi's trailer. John Landis grabbed it in rage, underestimating Belushi's own proclivity for violence. Belushi threw his body at the director, grabbing Landis's wrists and pulling at the baggies. The struggle didn't last long. Belushi broke down. And just like the scene they were now trying to film, the one where Belushi, as Joliet Jake Blues, begs for forgiveness, he was promising Landis that he'd turn it around. Landis knew it was lip service. Belushi had said it himself. He was like a shark. If he ever stopped, stopped moving, stopped using, stopped everything from heightening, then he would die. Landis had seen the straight Belushi before. When Landis directed him in Animal House, Belushi was sober. Landis wanted that guy to show up to the take. The cameras would roll, he'd take those sunglasses off, the ones that had been hiding his eyes, the portal to his soul, eyes that didn't lie. And Landis would know immediately what Belushi's current state of sobriety was. So would the audience. Landis put his trust in Belushi that his eyes would be clear. What else could he do? Action. Belushi began to plead his case again. Please don't kill us. You know I love you, baby. I wouldn't leave you. It wasn't my fault. He pulled off the sunglasses. His eyes were clear. His voice was sincere and honest. It was just what John Landis was looking for. Belushi may have looked clean for the take, but he wasn't quite ready to clean up for good. He knew he'd have to eventually. He hired a bodyguard named Smokey to keep him off the blow. At first, he regretted the decision because having Smokey around meant losing direct access to dope, but it worked. Belushi and Aykroyd took the Blues Brothers on the road. The tour wasn't just a success, it was a phenomenon. The transformation from sketch to movie to a real live band was complete, and Belushi was committed. He hired a trainer to keep him in shape. With cocaine in the rear view, he was exercising, eating healthy, even avoiding alcohol. He also said no to the dozens of typecasting roles he was offered. He didn't want to be Bluto for the rest of his career. He was cast in a film called Continental Divide, a romantic comedy. He was challenging himself. Belushi spent the summer of 1981 in an idyllic daydream. He and Judy retreated to their favorite respite on Martha's Vineyard, where the salt water and ocean breeze were known to work wonders. His performance in Continental Divide received positive reviews. Maybe this whole serious actor thing could pan out after all. John Belushi stayed clean, stayed calm, and continued to look after his health. But then, the summer heat slowly faded into fall. The leaves changed color and grew brittle and crisp. Then John Belushi was consumed by a new obsession fear. John Belushi struggled to get to the front of the stage at Studio 8H. The music was loud, aggressive, confrontational, and the volume kept getting louder. The band kept playing faster. Everything was heightened, just the way Belushi liked it. Punk rock was a far cry from the blues trip he'd been on before, but that trip was over. Belushi's stint as Joliet Jake was as shattered as the record-setting pileup of 103 cars left in the wake of the Blues Brothers movie. as his old pal Ronnie Wood would say. The Rolling Stones, and they were far from Belushi's mind right now too. He was digging the guys up on stage. Fear, that's what they called themselves. Fear, what a name for a band. Hell, Belushi essentially booked the hardcore band to play Saturday Night Live even though he was no longer a cast member. He told Lauren Michaels that he'd appear in a guest spot on the episode if they let the LA punk group play. And that was a decision NBC would come to regret. It was Halloween night, 1981. John Belushi brought a fear-friendly audience with him just in case the regular SNL crowd didn't get it. As a result, the place went nuts. Fans crowded the stage. They threw themselves into the air. They rushed the stage. They slammed their heads and their bodies. Somebody smashed a pumpkin and another reveler grabbed the microphone and screamed, fuck New York, on live television. John Belushi wasn't playing dress-up for Halloween. This was his new baseline, the new status quo. The days of idyllic summer bliss were a distant memory. Serenity on Martha's Vineyard was short-lived. He was frustrated, frustrated with the creative direction of his latest film, Neighbors. He was once again acting alongside his buddy, Dan Aykroyd, with the director, John Avildsen. The guy who made Rocky, he didn't know comedy. Belushi's frustration led to anger. That anger he felt when he was first getting started back in the basement of the Universal Life Church in Chicago, the anger that bubbled up and shattered the nose of a greaser asshole, that anger never went away. Now he funneled it into the raw power of the punk and hardcore scene. And though John Belushi's musical taste may have shifted, his taste for other things were still there. He was doing cocaine again. And the NBC brass watched in horror as the chaos unfolded with fear at the wheel, right on their own studio, right on national television during an episode of Saturday Night Live. They'd never seen anyone slam dance before, let alone even heard the word slam dance. They panicked and then they pulled the plug. The three song set ended with a fade to stock footage and a promise that the performance would never be aired again. Studio 8H sustained $20,000 in damage and the band John Belushi had personally vouched for, Fear, was banned for life. The failure ate away at John Belushi. So did the fact that Neighbors was a certified holiday flop when it was released that December. Between that film and Continental Divide, he was 0 for 2 in 1981. Scripts for future projects that he was reading felt beneath him, if he was being honest. The studios all wanted Belushi the oaf. They wanted Bluto all over again they wanted the safe bet. Fuck that. Belushi agreed to appear in a film called Sweet Deception, but not before he convinced Paramount to allow him to rewrite it. He changed the story and gave it a new name. The film would now be called Noble Rot. In it, Belushi would play the son of a Northern California winemaker who was sent to New York to represent the family in a wine competition when his older, more responsible brother gets sick. On the flight east, however, He meets a wealthy woman who convinces him to take part in a diamond fraud scheme. Belushi worked tirelessly on the script. He knew the film would be not only his return to form, it would be his first real artistic statement. But when he received Paramount's notes, Belushi was devastated. The studio hated it. And not only were they not going to make it, they were parlaying Belushi's agreement into another film, an obscenely juvenile comedy called The Joy of Sex. And they wanted Belushi to get some cheap laughs by wearing a diaper. Dan Aykroyd told him to hang tight while he finished a script for a new movie he was writing called Ghostbusters. Just picture it: Belushi strapping on a proton pack and blasting a class five full roaming vapor. But Belushi wasn't in a hanging tight mood. He was distraught. He was doing thousands of dollars worth of coke a week. And in March of 1982, he rented a bungalow at the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles. $200 a day was a drop in the bucket compared to the money he was throwing at his drug habit. Judy was back in New York, and the place was a mess. Still, he had visitors. Robert De Niro, Robin Williams. But that wasn't all. There were others. Others who weren't exactly famous. Others who weren't known by name. But take one look, and you knew exactly what they were there for. Take a good look, in fact. Just because the world is in focus now, doesn't mean it always will be life, it moves fast, sometimes too fast. March 5th, 1982. LAPD pulled over a red Mercedes for driving the wrong way into the one-way exit at the Chateau Marmont. The Mercedes was a rental, and it was rented in John Belushi's name. But the cops didn't find John Belushi behind the wheel. Instead, They arrested a Canadian woman named Kathy Smith on suspicion of possession of narcotics. She was wearing a blue and gray jogging suit. She cooperated fully. She handed over a syringe and a spoon. The cops didn't press charges, but they were interested in what she had to say because the person whose car she was driving, John Belushi, was found dead that morning in his messy $200 a night bungalow. Initial reports chalked it up to natural causes But those who knew Belushi knew better. And the cops thought Kathy Smith might know even more than his close friends. And Kathy Smith might have an inside scoop because she was the last person to see John Belushi alive. Smith didn't offer up much. And when the coroner's report came back that Belushi, just 33 years old, had died of an overdose of cocaine and heroin, Smith wasn't charged with anything, despite the fact that she had been found with drug paraphernalia that day they let her go. The papers didn't leave her alone. They followed her every move. They knew that she knew more, and they wanted the scoop. They wanted to know what it was like to hang out with John Belushi, the rock star comedian. Kathy Smith was tight-lipped, but 10 grand loosened her lips. And just a few months later, in June of 1982, Kathy Smith gave a tell-all interview to the National Enquirer with details of Joliet Jake's final days. In the interview, Smith admitted that she was the one to inject Belushi with a speedball on his last night on Earth. The interview led to an indictment by a grand jury on one count of second-degree murder and 13 counts of administering a dangerous drug. Smith pleaded no contest. She served 15 months of a three-year sentence before she was deported back to Canada. It didn't matter that she was free. The truth was right there. Immortalized in big black type and a headline that stopped you in your tracks. A headline that Kathy Smith was paid handsomely for, and the cover of that magazine read, I Killed John Belushi. Still, headlines like that and rags like the Inquirer, are they real, are they to be believed, or are they the kind of thing that ought to be in pictures? I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone. Shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.